Good morning, everybody. Once again, <clears throat> I want to. We're going to be sharing in communion here in just a few minutes. And if by chance uh, you did not receive uh, one of these little chalices with communion and also a little cloth. Uh, when you came in this morning, if you would just simply lift your hand where you are, and, uh, and they will see that and bring one to you. Uh, so be sure and, and just raise your hand, and they will get those to you. We appreciate that very, very much. Um, I, there, uh, I, an old pastor friend of mine told me an interesting story not too long ago that goes all the way back uh, to the days that uh, Bill Clinton was the president in the White House. Now, some of you may remember that he was uh, the governor of Arkansas before he became president, and he was actually a member of a Southern Baptist church there in the city of Little Rock. And he and his pastor, even after Clinton moved to Washington, D.C. and into the White House, uh, he and his pastor continued to maintain contact, uh, talked on a pretty regular basis, uh, which I imagine were some pretty interesting conversations uh, in those days. Um, but there, there was a group of what you might call uh, uh, big-time or big-wig uh, Southern Baptist pastors um, who w w started hounding Clinton's pastor uh, to set up a meeting where they could go and they could sit in the office at the White House and give Clinton the what for. I mean, they were worked for, I, I don't know what for which, uh, who knows, a good bit of a variety of things, but they wanted to go and give him the what for, and they just kept hounding and hounding and hounding, and finally, Clinton's pastor agreed to set up the meeting, so he set up the meeting, and the day arrived when all these, this group of pastors arrived, they walked into, they ushered into the Oval Office, and they were, I mean, they, as, as Clinton's pastor described it, I mean, those guys were like a, a bunch of pit bulls ready to attack. And uh, a few minutes passed, and an official came in and, and said, uh, the president will be with you in, in just a few moments. And uh, sure enough, just a few minutes later, uh, President Clinton entered into the room, and his pastor said <laughs> that the very moment that that happened, that these rabid pit bull pastors that were ready for the attack suddenly turned into little lap dogs. <laughs> I mean... What had happened is that they were suddenly overwhelmed, overwhelmed by this presence of presidential power. Overwhelmed by it. Part of our sinful human condition is that we are enamored with power. Enamored with it. As we find ourselves confronted these days with a variety of issues in our culture right now, and as God's people, we, not only do we not like it, but we know so many of these things are unbiblical as well, we tend to easily think that the answer is we just need to get more power. We're convinced that if we just get enough power, we can change things. We can power our way there. And the kind of power we think we need most, unfortunately, is political power. Richard Foster, in his classic work, Money, Sex, and Power, writes, Pride makes us think we are right, even with regard to how we go about it, and power gives us the ability to cram our vision of rightness down everyone else's throat. But friends, let me ask, are power plays the way that Jesus chose to go about changing the world? Through power plays? You know, Jesus' disciples were also consumed with the idea of power. 
<laughs> I mean, from very early on in Jesus' ministry up until the very moment that they, that, that they arrested him in the Garden of Gethsemane and hauled him away, they were convinced that Jesus was coming as the conquering Messiah, that he would overthrow the Roman rule over the Jews, that he would set up his kingdom, that he would rule from Jerusalem, and, and they would right all those Roman wrongs with power. And, of course, they were all determined to be the second in command, all 12 of them. <laughs> well, they continued to believe that in spite of the fact of multiple conversations where Jesus made it abundantly clear at least that's what the impression you get when you read the Scripture, abundantly clear that he was not coming as the conquering Messiah. He was coming as the suffering Messiah who would save them from their sins. The disciples weren't going to go there. <laughs> they were not even going to consider that possibility. And they got in multiple heated arguments about who among them was the greatest one of those occasions was in Mark chapter 9, verse 33. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, that is when Jesus was in the house, he asked them, so guys, what were you arguing about out on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. I mean, understand the context of this. This is right on the heels, right after Jesus has talked to them, has told them the very fact that he is going up to Jerusalem to die and that he will be delivered over to men who will kill him. And yet there they were on the road, walking along right behind this one who has just said he is a dead man walking and get into an argument about pecking order. So verse 35, sitting down. Jesus is so amazingly patient. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. And taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Jesus takes this powerless, utterly dependent, insignificant, vulnerable little child and tells the disciples, if you really want to be great, if you really want to be great, forget about pecking order and status and start humbling yourself to serve all others, all others who are just like this child. Just one chapter later, Mark chapter 10, two of his disciples, James and John, who quickly forgot about what Jesus has just taught them, and, and they asked Jesus, Jesus, when you, when you come into your kingdom, would you make us the number two and number three guy? Would you do that for us? I mean, the rest of the disciples can't believe what they're hearing. Mark says they were indignant with James and John. So again, with incredible patience, Jesus says to them in verse 42, Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even, he adds this, 
For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, you'd hope, <laughs> you'd hope that, that maybe they were starting to get it here. Maybe they were beginning to understand. Maybe it was starting to sink in, but not so. Go with me now into the upper room on the night before Jesus was crucified. As Jesus and the disciples entered the room, there was normally, normally would have been a servant standing there at the door ready to wash their feet, wash, dry them off with a towel. But this was a secret meeting. Jesus' enemies were trying, to, were, on their, were trying their best to try to kill him, and so it was Jesus, only, Jesus and only his disciples that were gathered there. And the meal that they were about to share was called the Passover. It's that meal that is required from the, the Mosaic Law, which looked back with great gratitude to that night hundreds of years earlier when they were rescued from their 400 years of bondage of slavery in Egypt when that plague of death passed over each of the homes of those who had painted the blood of the Lamb on their doorposts. So, while seated around the Passover table, <laughs> incredibly, Luke tells us, verse 24, 22, verse 24, then they, that is the disciples, began to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest among them. <laughs> Jesus told them, this world, in this world, it repeats in, in essence what he, he tried to teach them earlier. In this world, the kings and great men lorded over their people, yet they are called friends of the people. That is, they, they were making the people beholden to them. But, Jesus says, among you it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you shall take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. But this time, Jesus did not stop with words. Jesus enacted a parable around the table that night, an object lesson, if you will, on the meaning of true greatness and servanthood, one which no doubt was seared into the minds and hearts of those disciples forever. John's gospel tells us, chapter 13, verse 4, so he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around them. Now, again, when they entered, there was no servant at the door to wash the feet of the disciples, but there was water and a towel there that was provided for that purpose. But you can bet that none of the disciples would dare going to stoop to take on a role like that with that kind of humility that would be required to, to be like, act like a servant to the rest of the disciples because that would be a ready admission that they were sure not the greatest. The disciples dared not do that, but Jesus did. Jesus, the Son of God, Master, Savior, Lord, the one through whom the entire universe had been created, 
took water and a towel in his hands and went all around that table on his knees before each and every one of those disciples and washed their dirty, stinky feet, including Judas's. When he was done, we read verse 12. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, Do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth, slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. In other words, if Jesus takes the role of servant, then the servant of such a master should expect to do the same. Verse 17, now that you know these things, now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. Friends, our sinful human perspective of greatness is so deeply ingrained in us. What Jesus is teaching here, what Jesus is giving us an example of is so difficult to accept. The example of his life, much less to apply it, that true greatness is serving especially when it comes to those changes that we'd like to see take place in our culture right now because, of his, because his example of servanthood means that we should be willing to serve into those changes instead of trying to power our way through. Power plays close hearts. Serving opens them. Well, as we continue to allow the Spirit of Christ to work in our hearts, let's take time to remember now not just how Jesus served his disciples, but how Jesus served us. Because that humble lesson that Jesus taught with the foot washing is a very intentionally acted out parable that is a foreshadowing of what Jesus is about to do the next day when he humbly laid down his life upon the cross to serve us. Within hours of washing their feet, Jesus was arrested, brutalized, tortured, and then crucified on a cross. The same Jesus who held the power in his hands to calm a storm, who held in his hands the greatest power the world has ever seen before and hasn't ever seen since and will not see again until he returns, you remember when Pilate threatened him, saying that, that, he, that Pilate himself had the power to crucify him? You remember what Jesus said? He said, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. See, Jesus chose to surrender his power and give up his life for us. And in that one act of unconditional love and service, heaven. Heaven was opened, was opened 
and the world was changed forever. Well, now, as we share in communion, we remember his sacrificial service for us. We express our gratitude for what it means to us personally, our salvation, providing a personal love relationship with God, providing peace with God, hope, spiritual healing. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So please, if you would, take that little chalice. And at the bottom, you'll find the wafer if you'll go ahead and and remove the covering for that. Matthew's gospel tells us, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, And gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body given for you. His body given for us. And now if you would take these next few moments to, in silent prayer, meditate on the scripture that you're about to see on the screen. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Continue to consider what his great act of service means for how we should live our lives serving others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used in his own, to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Spend a few moments continuing to give him thanks, continuing to consider the implications for our own life of service. And now, if you'll take that little chalice once again, this time remove the covering of the cup. We 
we read, Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. His blood poured out for our forgiveness. Lord Jesus, how we thank you that even though you were in very nature, you are in very nature God, chose to leave heaven, make yourself nothing by taking the nature of a servant, made in human likeness, that you chose to surrender your power and to humble yourself, becoming obedient even to death on a cross. We thank you that you did that for us to make new life possible. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.